This is Andy Milligan, co-author with Simon Bailey of Myths of Branding. Dispel the misconceptions and become a brand expert. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Andy Milligan to talk about the book he has co-authored with Simon Bailey, Myths of Branding, Dispel the Misconceptions and Become a Brand Expert, published by Kogan Page. Andy Milligan is a leading international brand and business consultant and is acknowledged as an expert on all areas of brand development. He advises CEOs and senior management teams on strategies for developing and exploiting brands and growing their business. Andy's experience spans industries as diverse as airlines, financial services, packaged goods, telecommunications, sports and leisure, and pharmaceuticals. He has directed major programs in Japan, South Korea, Singapore, the USA, and throughout Europe. Clients he has worked with include Nissan, World Wildlife Fund, McLaren, Barclays, Unilever, Thai Airways, and FIFA. Love that. He's a regular speaker at conferences internationally and has made frequent appearances in media, including on BBC, Sky, and CNN, and now the Marketing Book Podcast. Idiot! He has published six other best-selling books, See, Feel, Think, Do, which explores the success of instinct in business, Brand It Like Beckham, which analyzes the success of David Beckham as a celebrity brand, Uncommon Practice, which examines the link between great brands and their corporate cultures, Don't Mess With the Logo, which is a straight-talking guide to brand building, and Bold, voted Management eBook of the Year, which reveals the practices that make great brands stand out and turn customers into fan. Andy's last book, On Purpose, is a practical guide to executing business purpose successfully by delivering a branded customer experience people love. And, interesting fact, after graduating from Oxford, he was trained to be an actor Andy, congratulations on Myths of Branding, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, Doug, thank you. Everybody loves applause. That's yes. the actor in me that is loving that. Absolutely, yes, yes. So now you worked for McLaren. Did they give you like a McLaren to drive while you were working for them? No, but I did get to go to the technical center, which is like, which is amazing. It's uh, about a, a half an hour outside of London. And have you ever seen the film Men in Black? Uh, yeah. With uh, Will Smith and uh-huh. uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Well, if you remember, the headquarters 
is like deep, deep down this incredibly polished white building with lots of scientists and technicians all running around. And the McLaren Technical Center is like that. It's kind of... Oh, okay. Okay. Well, yeah. I think that I may have seen parts of it on the Netflix show Formula One, mm. where they've had, I guess there's a McLaren team. Yes, that's right. That's the technical center where they do all of their, uh, when, the, when the teams are performing, they've, that's where their cars are out on the tracks, uh-huh. no matter where they are. All of live feed is being fed back and all the data is being fed back to this kind of credible center under the yeah. ground. Fascinating. London. So yeah. FIFA, they did give you World Cup tickets though, right? They did. Uh, it was a long time ago, but that was a fascinating uh, Which one? Which one did you go to? 2002. And you mentioned that I wrote a book about David Beckham and the brand, brand Beckham. And I don't know how many of your uh, listeners will, will know part of the story of uh, the Beckham brand was during the 1998 World Cup, he got sent off. And this was part of his infamy against Argentina in 1998. And in the 2002 World Cup, they played Argentina again and he scored the winning penalty. So it was a great moment. I, I was there for that game oh, um, my in, in Sapporo in Japan. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Mm. Well, so this book is one of the, the myths books from Kogan Page, and I just love it. This is the third one that's been on. I've had uh, Myths of Marketing by Grant Leboff, and I've had recently Myths of Social Media, the first and second edition. So if you update this with a second edition, please come back. And this book is just another home run, to use a uh, baseball analogy. I must say, though, there were a couple of British terms I had to look up, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm smarter because of it. We like to educate people, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that's important for me, because like Forrest Gump, I'm not a smart man. <laughs> but, you know, too many branding books have come across my desk over the years that I think are just a little too much about what the marketing department does, as if the marketing department is still responsible for the brand, and we're going to talk about that. But I, I was wondering if, if it, do you have you sensed that in your career? Yes, I mean when I started out in my career in branding, which is thirty three years ago now, there was a seminal text which was called "Branding: A Key Marketing Tool," and I think that's the way that most people thought about brands. And actually, most people th- assumed that brands were products, you know, things you bought off the shelf, can of Coke or a can of Pepsi, uh, washing powder, that sort of stuff. And that was a function of a, you know, the consumer society that grew up very, very quickly post-war where there was a really focus on, on, on you know, selling products. And, and so the marketing team had a big role to play in the differentiation of what were often undifferentiated products. You know, what was the difference between one soap powder or another? So um, branding had a big role to play there. But by the time I had, uh, by the time at the end of that decade, from 1990 to 2000, the core book, one of the core books on uh, bra- uh, branding was uh, Brands, The New Wealth of Nations. And what that was saying was actually these assets, the, this thing called intellectual property, trademark, they were so valuable that all the whole business needed to understand what made them so valuable. And it wasn't just about marketing. It was about all the interacting functions from the, uh, the, you know, the people departments. Very important. We'll talk about this, I'm sure, later. Yeah, but um, also I can remember this always seemed to come up every time there was yet another enormous acquisition by a company. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. or a merger, and they would they would the the financial press had to talk about yeah. why did they seemingly overpay for all that property, plant, and equipment? Well, <laughs> that seemed to generate a lot of discussion of brand value. Exactly, and you know we talk about that as one of the myths that um, one of the myths that brands don't have any uh, financial value other than you know what a consumer pays for it on the day. That's not true. And the first business that I, I worked in had pioneered the concept of brand valuation, and precisely for that reason, so that when these big deals that were going on to buy companies often brand-rich companies, companies who had a, a big brand portfolio, what were they buying? Well, they weren't really interested in buying the manufacturing plants. Maybe they're a bit interested in buying the distribution, but what they really wanted to get their hands on were the brands. Mm. And so there must be value in them. So how do you value them so that you can reflect the true value of the business that you is being sold? And also, so you've then got an asset base on your books, that reflects the value of the business you now have. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a very simple piece of um, data, you can probably find this anywhere online, that looks at the amount of value on the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100 that is tangible value. That's, you know, literally plants, machinery, all that kind of stuff, and intangible value. Uh, that sort of stuff you can't see, touch. That's patents and copyrights and management goodwill and trademarks. And from the 1970s, that proportion of value moved from something like 70% tangible, 20, 30% intangible to the other way around. (laughs) Um, And if you think about Apple and you think about Amazon nowadays, a large amount of the value is in the intangible assets those organizations own. And that's uh, one of the big shifts in in our economy. And that's why brands are so important to businesses. They mm-hmm. are a massive part of the value of those businesses because they're a massive part of the value of stock markets these days. Oh, yes. And those are some of the, the things. One you mentioned earlier, brands are just consumer goods. That was myth 22. <laughs> yeah. You've got all these others about the value. It's terrific. I want to read from um, page six, uh, an excerpt. You wrote, we have chosen 25 myths that we feel are commonplace and persistent. Some of these myths have been around for as long as we have been practitioners in this field, which is almost 30 years. Some are more recent and are a result, perhaps, of the growing importance and thus growing academic and quasi-academic scrutiny to which brands are subjected. With each myth, we've attempted to represent why it has come about, as well as, of course, what it is. The myths explain the relevant issues to which the myth relates and, for the most part, offer repudiation or occasionally a sympathetic clarification of them. So my challenge here is we don't have time to go through all 25. Uh, folks can certainly buy the book, but I picked out eight that, mm. you know, if we if we have time, we can get through and these are the ones that I've encountered over the years that have you know, I'm not I'm a like Michael Jackson, Andy. I'm I'm a lover, not a fighter, and I don't want to go around <laughs> hurting people but i swear some of these have made me want to you know slap people i mean they when i run into some of these again and again this is how i feel no god no god please no 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 so uh you're channeling minus spirit yes yes yes. well you know or, or crazy pills it's like it drives me nuts because one of the things i 
like I said, I'm not a smart man. And actually, the more you learn, the more you learn you don't know. Absolutely. And every single book I read, I learn so much. I head slap yeah. and I say, Douglas, how did you not know that? But I think that there's a lot I don't know. What drives me nuts are business people who don't know what they don't know. <laughs> mm. And this is what kind of set me off. So I've calmed down, Andy, but your book, <laughs> it, it was an emotional roller coaster for me. But what I wanted to do was ask you a couple quick questions before we jump into a few of these. One of them is um, on page seven, you write, in the field of marketing, I wanted you to explain this, in the field of marketing and business generally and in branding specifically, there is too often a desire to use long, complicated terms and words for what are already abstract concepts. You know, it's a prevailing problem, as I say, generally in business which for me is one of the most human activities. You know, we are unique as a species in trading. And so, you know, doing business is very human, but uh, we tend to sometimes make business seem so much like it's some kind of highfalutin science. And we like to, you know, create new jargon and new terms and polysyllabic words that nobody understands. But it's that old trick, isn't it? You know, if you make something seem uh, really, really, really clever and long, then it must be clever and long, and therefore it must be worth paying for. You must worth paying for. Uh, and it's driven me, uh, you know, nuts from the start. And I think marketers are some of the worst offenders. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of tr- truth in, in in that. That sometimes, and I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't know if it's sometimes people feel that if they create a, you know, a, a sort of a pseudo-scientific or pseudo-intellectual name for something, it'll make the discipline of marketing seem much more important or, you know, maybe that's it. But I think it gets in the way. And I think at the, at the you know, and building a business is just hard anyway without trying to make it even more complicated by creating strange terminology. So, we tend to, as much as possible, and, and if there's any time where I lapse into unnecessary jargon, just across the airwaves, Doug, hit me over the head with one of your uh, sound bites. <laughs> right. um, yes. Because, you know, really, brands are a very, very simple thing in one, in one side. It's just a very, very difficult to build and very difficult to, to manage. Yes, and that's why on that same page you say branding is not rocket science. It's way more complicated than that. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> And also, there's yeah. a, there's an author who's been on the show five times, I think, Bob Hoffman. He's the ad contrarian. Maybe uh, I know a lot of listeners right. will remember him, but he, one of his books he wrote was called uh, "Consumers Are from New Jersey, Marketers Are from Mars," or something yes. like that. Yeah. And in that, he says there's no bullshit like brand bullshit, and I mm-hmm. think it's it's completely true. And uh, this book yeah. falls outside of that. Just <laughs> yeah. so that's why I, so, I loved it. And it's core. It's myths of branding. So it's just one balloon after another that you pop here. But let me mention that in the book, you have included Jeff Bezos's description of brands, which is one of my favorites. Uh, he's reputed to have said, a brand is what people say about you when you are not in the room. And if the uh, listener doesn't uh, take anything else away from this conversation. Let's talk about something important. There's a line throughout the book that I just love, and it keeps coming up over and over again. And this is what you should know. A brand 
is what a brand does. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? I've actually gone ahead and gotten that tattoo. It says a brand <laughs> is what a brand does. A brand is what a brand does. Let's jump into some of these. And like I said, I don't know if we have time for all of them. And I don't know that, you know, just a word to the listener. I'm not sure how long that uh, Andy's going to want to keep talking to me. So, Andy, if you get a little bit tired of talking to me, here's what I want you to say. Shut up! Shut up! Will you shut up? <laughs> you know, I'm English. I'm British. We, we, are, we are so polite. You know, I know. You will have to infer my impatience, <laughs> which will be even harder over the internet here. Yes, but, yes. So, okay, I'll try. All right, let's start. Let's start with a few of them. So we can't do twenty-five, but I picked out a few. One of them, yeah. it just is. I'm required by podcast law to cover first, which is branding is just about the logo and advertising. And if I could, I, uh, years ago, I was giving a talk at the local American Marketing Association uh, luncheon. And there was this uh, fellow in the audience who was asking questions about how to prove ROI. And I mean, these were good, good questions. And then afterwards, I was talking to him, and I said, "What you know? What who, who do you work for?" And he worked for like this uh, fuel company, you know, like a yeah. oil company where they they provide all kinds of fuels and lubricants, and they had a big a big East Coast company, lots of trucks, all that sort of thing. And I said, "What what do you uh, what do you do there?" He goes, "Oh, I'm the I'm the head of brand." And I said, "Oh." Really? Okay. Let's. Well, uh, what, what? What kind of things you doing? And he goes, "Well, I am responsible for making sure the logo is correct on all the trucks and in everywhere we go, and the website and all the brochures." And I just, I, you know, I, I, I listened to this. I wasn't going to say anything, but then, you know, they later got acquired, and he was the first guy fired. Mm. <laughs> and that was just, I, I just when I saw this branding is just about the logo and advertising. I thought, yeah, this probably is still pretty. Uh, pervasive, and then you write of all the myths. This is perhaps the most enduring, and mm. probably the most injurious to an appreciation of what a brand is and the different disciplines involved in creating it. Uh, you started to touch on this. Can you talk, take us back a little bit to how this myth got started, and maybe that'll help us understand why it's still so pervasive. Well, I think the reason it got started is because most people. You know, who grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, the you know, the interaction with brands would have been around products that they bought on the shelves, which had to be differentiated by brand names and logos, and advertising that they saw on TV. So, to a captive audience, to a captive audience, <laughs> exactly, to a captive audience. And so, inevitably, if that is where the culture references are around brands, and you know that's what you'd hear people talking about and people saying, then you're tend to going to be hardwired to think, well, branding is all about the logo, isn't it? And it's all about advertising, and and that's it. And of course, you know, a lot of uh, some of these products that were being sold, you know, they weren't particularly differentiated in the product themselves. I mean, it's very difficult to tell one detergent from another detergent i know coke and pepsi did the you know pepsi challenge different tastes and stuff but in the end you know it's a sugary soda brown soda liquid so those sort of visible signs that you get as a consumer that that we grew up and became so important culturally is where you would be your first reference point what brand is and you know and advertising 
alone as a discipline was not in the, you know was not independent. It would advertising and PR would work together. So there was a great campaign going on. Then they'd be covered also in the press. So there'd be a lot of coverage in the press about this new brand of whatever it was, dishwasher, battery, soda, car. And again, it would all tend to focus on the name, the look, the feel, the advertising. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it's just in people's heads and it's difficult to, to, to dislodge. I think, funnily enough, a, a younger generation who's grown up with a different cultural appreciation and interaction of brands, i.e. they've grown up in a world where brands are not just products. They've grown up in a world where, hey, TikTok's a brand, Facebook's a brand, Amazon's a brand. You know, They're used to encountering brands in many, many different ways over many different touch points and through many different channels, as you said, not just one single captive TV channel. I think they have a broader appreciation of the fact there's much more that goes into uh, building a brand than the, the name and logo. Having said that, Doug, it is true that the name, the brand name and the logo are the fundamental building block without which no brand exists. If you don't have a registered trademark, you don't have a brand worth talking about. And when we were talking earlier about the millions and trillions of dollars that are spent between companies buying and selling brands, at the end of the day, what asset is literally, literally being passed from one company to another is is not a product on the shelf, but a piece of paper that has a trademark registration on it. That is the asset that's being basically passed from one company to another. That brand name is Gold Dust. So the name and logo are a fundamental building block, and advertising is an incredibly important part of communicating and establishing awareness, etc., of, of a brand. But they are not just what the brand is about. There, of course, is the product. We like to say a brand is created by a chain of experiences that people have from the moment they hear about it on TV to the moment they buy it in a shop or they buy it online or it's not, of course, something necessarily that's a product. It might be a hotel they stay in, a service they buy, etc., right through to beyond. And I just finished off this. You mentioned Jeff Bezos and that quote. We were very fortunate, Doug. Our first book, Uncommon Practice, 21 years ago, we interviewed Jeff Bezos for that. We featured Amazon. This is 2001. Amazon had been going for about five years. and we um, He probably still had a a door as a desk. Yeah. (laughs) But here's the thing. If you ever get a chance to read the book, everything he said, everything he spoke about then is exactly what's happened, exactly the way he's run his company from the start extreme customer centricity, clarity about what the Amazon brand stood for and the ambition for the Amazon brand. And he was full of these great quotes. One of them, a brand is what's said about you when you're not in the room. Why? Because word of mouth was more important for him than share of voice. Word of mouth was going to generate interest and trial in Amazon. And he understood that in the digital world, e-word of mouth could have phenomenal impact on your on your business. Mm-hmm. So creating an impression, letting people know what Amazon was about, not only through what you talked about, because they didn't do any advertising, by the way, of course, but the experience that people had of them was absolutely critical. So, And he had another great um, quote, one we use all the time on, on this point about chain of experiences, that customer experience, branded experience, is it's not customer service. It's the end-to-end experience. It's that whole chain. And it starts when you hear about Amazon from a friend, and it ends when you get the package uh, at your 
delivered to your door and you open it. And in fact, from now it, go, it goes on even further than that. It goes and, on and it has what you ordered. <laughs> and it has what you ordered. It's not broken. And, it, and it's not a pain in the butt to open. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The amount, again, the amount of thinking that they would do about yes. the experience. And they're not selling product. It's, it's somebody else's product they're selling, if you know what I mean. But the packaging, the amount of time they, they thought about what do we want to do? We've got to make this as easy as possible. For people to open this packaging because that's an important moment. They got it. Great. It's arrived in time. Oh, how can we make it as easy as possible? Because that's another moment of truth to open it and get the wonderful thing. And they will associate that particular moment of truth, the ease of opening with the Amazon brand. And that's what people will remember when you're not in the room. Yes. And they've even uh, influenced the manufacturers of the products to have uh, more customer-friendly Packaging, and there was another book on the show uh, by John Picot about customer experience. Yeah, and I'll include a link to that interview. And he talked about how <laughs> Amazon doesn't like it when people use a box cutter to have to open the packaging mm. from the manufacturer, and then they end up cutting themselves. Yeah. So it was Amazon that took it upon themselves to exactly. to, to, to do what they could. Exactly. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary... They wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Yeah, for me, brand and customer centricity completely intertwined. You know, your brand, you want your brand to stand for something in, in your target customer or consumer's mind. So you've got to deliver something that's going to stick in their mind. And so you've got to find out what they value. And again, one of the things he was talking about then, he still does, is is um, extreme customer centricity. You know, we, we, we start with the customer and then we work back from there. So everything inside the business was about what's the customer insight that, is going to drive what we need to do. And you're absolutely right. One of those was the package arrives. It's a pain to open or I cut myself. Well, you're going to blame Amazon for that in some way. So <laughs> so they took ownership of it. So they took ownership of it, exactly. And they controlled what they could control. And that's the other thing about branding is make sure you you really control it and over-index positively on those things you can control. So let me uh, just kick this dead horse one more time because we talked about logo and advertising and you write all these elements of the management of a brand's identity are but the tip of an iceberg. Mm. And that's in the section on brands are built through a chain of experiences. And one of the things that's really important, and we're going to talk even more about it, is where you say on page 56, the people in frontline service roles are driving the perceptions of the brand. So let's go to another one, which is number 14. You know, and I think the reasons I pick some of these is because I want the CEOs to understand this. I think the marketing people yeah. know a lot of this. But a, a brand is owned by the marketing department. 
That's a myth, okay? Yes. And it brings to mind the David Packard quote. He was the co-founder of Hewlett Packard. Marketing yeah. is too important to be left to the marketing department. And he didn't mean you don't need a marketing department. Mm. But this sort of goes back to what you were talking about in the Mad Men era of uh, yeah. what they were perceived to own the brand because it was more visual. Let me just jump to something you see on page 128, which is really fascinating. The interesting thing about brands is that it is the customer who owns them. Brands like to control as much as they possibly can the way people think about the brand. And of, of course they do. They want to make people feel this is a, a great product, a great company, a great, you know. And I would think that in the past, they could control a little bit more. They could. But in the end, the impressions that you leave in the mind of a cons- con- consumer are driven, that's people like you and me, of course, by the way, are driven by so many multiple different touch points that you've got to really work really hard if you want to own that real estate in their mind and control it in the way. Otherwise, they will get an impression of you. If you, don't contr- if you are not really on every single touch point that is going to affect that customer's impression of you, then you are allowing your customer to come up with their own impression of you. Mm-hmm. So this is why the people who, who represent you, the frontline staff or the people working in stores that represent you or the people in the front, they're going to have an impression on you and, and what people think about you. And that's why we say, ultimately, brand is a very much an intellectual concept. The product or the service is a manifestation of it at any one time. I mean, you know, you think about IBM. I mean, IBM has been through so many different manifestations of products all, all, all through its life. It sold typewriters and big compute mainframes and then laptops, and now it doesn't sell anything. But we all know, and we have a point of view about the IBM brand. And that's why we say the, the it lives in the mind of the customer. in them, And that is why you have to work really, really hard to make sure that what you're saying in advertising is going to be delivered consistently through all the other touch points, not just the product, but the people who encounter, where it's sold, how it's sold, other services that might be provided by it, because it's a difficult part of somebody's psyche to completely control the mind. So you've got to really, really work hard at that, because in the end, somebody's going to take away, it's back to that Jeff Bezos quote, when you're not in the room, what are they thinking about you? Because the brand exists in their mind. And you you talk about how you know they're gonna they're gonna fill that void up with their perceptions of you uh, if you don't do it yourself. Yeah, and and those perceptions may be being created. And this is one of the problems nowadays with um, social media. Sometimes those perceptions are going to be created by your competitors, or worse still, by people who don't like your brand because of what you did to them when they were trying to buy your brand or when they bought your brand. Yeah. And, you know, we'll go back to that whole point about why did Jeff Bezos say the brand is what's said about you in your your room. It's connected to his complete understanding of the importance of word of mouth and driving his business and continue to drive his business and all great businesses. Advocacy is very important. It's because, you know, the, the economic impact of a customer not liking you, having a bad impression of you, thinking negatively about you, is not just that they won't buy from you again, it's they'll prevent lots of other people trialing you because they will tell 
in the old days, you know, you say maybe like a dozen, you, you, you tell 20 Your neighbors. People of, yeah. 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 You know, now in the social world, in the social media world, that huge community, they can reach out and they can put a blog, they can do a Facebook post, they can do an Instagram post, they can do a TikTok video nowadays that can, can spread quite quickly a story about your brand that is unfavorable. Yes. And that's going to infect the impression in customers' mind that you can't, you're not controlling. That's why we say the brand is not just a marketing department's responsibility. You know, it, it starts at the very top of the organization and you have to think very carefully about that chain of experiences that are going to affect the impression of your brand. How are we making sure it's consistent and you're never going to get it hundred percent right. Nobody ever does, but if you get it right enough times, people will forgive you when you get it wrong. I think the bar is pretty low. <laughs> if you just <laughs> yeah. make the effort, I, I, yes. I'm, I'm so delighted. Like if the plane lands in the right city on the right day, <laughs> I'm thrilled. Well, here's a great story. I mean, about what I mean, and it re- and it relates to a company called Virgin, which you probably know. But many people have heard of Virgin Atlantic. Oh yeah, which you talk about in the, the book brand. quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they also uh, had in the UK the franchise to run some of the train services in the UK, Virgin Trains, and there was one moment where a passenger went to the toilet on a Virgin train, and you know, he was on the toilet. And then he realized there was no toilet paper. And he did not want to leave the toilet because there was no toilet paper. And, and what was he going to do? Well, it's actually at, at a critical touch point for a customer on a passenger train. No toilet paper in, a, in the toilet is quite significant, you know? Anyway, he tweeted. He tweeted, he said, stuck on a virgin train with no toilet paper. What do I do? Virgin picked up that tweet worked out what train it was on, and a few minutes later, there was a knock on the door, and the passenger had handed some toilet paper. And it, it sounds like a trivial example, but actually, the you think about what had to happen to enable that customer recovery. Right. What had to be engineered yeah. organizationally beforehand? Exactly. How vigilant they had to be as a company to look at and follow what people were saying on Twitter, the pickup, here's an issue with a customer. You know, which we could do something about. We've got a process to cap to contact the train, to let the train conductor know what's happening. And then, of course, that story went viral. And it was a great positive story. So now people think, well, Virgin, look after the customers. And that's a great example of it. And we put it in our book and others. And so these examples may seem a bit trivial, but actually, if you look behind what is required to deliver that at a moment of crisis for a customer, it's not accident. There's an organizational intent, and that's what I mean. Yeah, and it's not graphic standards. It's not graphic standards. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. You know, before we wrap up, I wanted to mention one thing that I, I don't mean to upset you, but you talked about how if you don't step in and do these things, you're leaving it up to someone else. Now, you went to Oxford. I want to do. I want to quote from someone who went to Cambridge, and I, I know that's going to trigger you, but. Isaac Newton is believed to have said, nature abhors a vacuum. And the good example of that is what Amazon did, where they never said, it's not my problem. In other words, they went to the manufacturers and said, you've got to get these things 
you got to make these things easier to open. We don't make your yeah. product, but yeah. we're not going to deliver it if you don't make it better. Yeah. So I, I, it's like Amazon or a great brand owner never says, it's out of my hands. It's not my problem. You can't control everything, but they try to influence it. And let me just quote from one other thing here, because for those CEOs who are listening, you talk, you know, we talked about there's an intangible asset that lives in the customer's head. And you're right, this distinction is important for several reasons. First, your brand is really just the sum of all the things that you have ever said and done. It is the impression that you leave in the mind of your customer. Second, if you lose sight of what your customer wants, then your brand is likely to quickly lose relevance and appeal. Third, if your customer owns your brand, then the CEO is the one who is now in charge of managing it. And earlier in the book, you write that if the brand is the sum of everything the business does, then doesn't that make the chief executive the ultimate brand guardian? So what I'm trying to help listeners do is to arm them for management by in-flight magazine, where the boss comes in, throws the magazine down on the marketer's desk and says, you need to improve our brand. Whoa. <laughs> you've yeah. got you've got some work there. You probably should update your resume, but there's a lot of education <laughs> that you should do. And you know, and related to that, let's jump to number 19. Branding has nothing to do with the customer experience. And under the subhead where it says a brand is what a brand does. Can you dig it? <laughs> so on page 179, you're right. While recognition and attribution are fundamental to the process of brand building, what you think and feel about a brand is really the sum of all the individual experiences you have had with that particular brand. In today's world, building successful brands of any shape or size is intimately connected to the orchestration of the customer experience. So, Andy, in your experience, are companies surprised that customer experience, you know, CX as we call it, is such a dominant factor in building a brand? Are they, are they still hoping that it's just a matter of developing a new logo? I think your example, the story you tell of management by in-flight magazine and walking down, it's a brand problem, I'm going to whack it on the marketing director or brand mm-hmm. directors. It is absolutely so spot on. And this is the problem with the way organizations organize themselves is they have a habit of siloization. They have a habit of, well, this is an important thing. Let's create a department. I mean, the fact there is something called a marketing department when, you know, as we said, actually, uh, as you said, um, a guy from uh, Hewlett Packard said, you know, there's a bigger thing. Marketing is too important to be left to a particular department. Now more than in the past. Now more than ever. And I think it's partly because of our sort of, uh, and I don't want to get too super philosophical here, but we we like hierarchies of our organizational structures are very hierarchical. We like to pin responsibility onto things. And so we like to create a department where we can pin a responsibility onto it and that's their responsibility and off they go. And it's kind of like with things like legal departments or the finance, that kind of works because the legal department, it's a very specific set of skills. You have to be trained for years on to know the law in respect to corporations, the companies, intellectual property, et cetera. Finance, same thing. There's a huge body of regulations and stuff you need to know. But things like marketing and to a large extent, people, these are messy things. They, they're, they're not really a sole department's responsibility 
anywhere in the real world, you know, you think about the people side of things. Okay, you'll have the chief person, the people officer, but who really has an impact on the development people inside the business? Well, it'll be the manager of those people or what the CEO says and does, all their colleagues. So I think this is part of the problem that management of a brand, it leaks across a number of different responsibilities in the organization because from a customer's point of view, let's take let's take a simple thing like a car. Let's take a BMW car. Um, sure, the product is important. And there's a whole body of engineers and designers who are creating that product. The look, the feel, the style, BMW. And then, of course, there's the advertising, the marketing people who are creating the image and getting the campaigns going. But then there's the after sales. And it's the people in the dealership are selling to you. The people in the dealership need to kind of, you know, reflect the brand and the, the way the dealership look uh, needs to reflect the brand. And that's not going to be done by the marketing department. And then, as I say, the after sales, that's going to be done by the after sales team. And that impacts your impression of the brand. And then there's the financing because a lot of times you might want to buy a BMW using the, the BMW's financing. And that's a different department. So all these are multiple impressions that people will have on that brand and they are run by different departments. And therefore, who ultimately is in charge of all those departments? The CEO. <laughs> the CEO. So the CEO and the board are the ones who have got to say, we take ultimate responsibility for what goes out of this building under our name. And what I love about Jeff Bezos, and I don't know him particularly well, so when I say I love about him, it's, uh, you know, what I really like about Jeff Bezos is the point you were making, Doug. They take responsibility for the customer. They take responsibility for what goes out under the name Amazon, even to the point of seeking to influence the people who are selling things through them mm -hmm. in to, because that's also part of what their customers are going to get out of uh, Amazon. So it is, in my opinion, the most important thing a CEO can do is to be a living day-to-day -day champion of both the brand and the customer, because for me, they're kind of inter they are so interrelated. You know, it's like this is what I'm going to stand for, because this is what our customers value most, and we can want to keep finding out more and more what our customers will value most, so that we can keep standing for it. And then I'm going to tell the the whole of the business this is what we focus on. These are the things we've got to get right for our customers. So mm -hmm. whether you're in the whether you're looking after our people, whether you're looking after our plants, whether you're looking after our products, whether you're looking after our marketing. Everybody needs to be focused on these same things and then deliver it in different ways. I think that is something that great CEOs do. And I think, that unfortunately, there are probably still a lot of people who think, yeah, brand, I hand it over to the brand department or over to the hand it over to the marketing department to deal with issues fundamentally marketing can't deal with sometimes. Yes. And yeah. for those marketers that are facing that, maybe you could just figure out a way for the CEO to listen to this interview. You know, I want to go down this just a little bit further. I want to keep. Mm. I want to keep kicking this because uh, I want to go uh, with myth twenty three. Brands are just w about what happens on the outside. It is a common myth across the business community that brands have a lot to do with what happens on the outside of a business and not very much to do with what goes on inside. This is profoundly wrong. Brands are everything to do with what happens on the inside. And let me just mention here, it has a lot to do with your uh, employees. And earlier in the book, you write, a good brand cannot hide a poor internal culture. Yes. And the best way to build a well-loved brand is to win the, the hearts and minds of your employees. 
And again, let me just mention two other things. The very best brands don't tend to make a distinction between brand and culture, and brands should apply the same tools and techniques to their internal audiences as they do to their customers. Hearts and minds are rarely won with a 15-minute PowerPoint presentation. Oh, again, I, you know, if if they have problems with the fact that branding has nothing to do with customer experience, if that's if that's, uh, I don't think they're going to get to this one. Brands are just about what happens on the outside. Yeah. Have you dealt with companies that have just? I guess uh, maybe they they don't hire you, but what, how how are these suddenly these companies start to come to grips with the fact that they can't delegate this to a marketing person? It has to do with how you run the damn company. Yes. Well, sometimes. You know, there can be a shock to the system that forces them to address that problem. <laughs> That's usually the case, yeah. That's usually the case. Now, I'm not saying that the Dieselgate scandal that rocked VW, the VW group, a few years back was entirely due to a systemic cultural problem. But the fact is, it was tolerated that and allowed to happen that Volkswagens were effectively that people were allowed to cheat the the emission tests mm-hmm. Volkswagen and they landed them in an enormous enormous problem and I think UBS the Swiss bank has estimated that it's going to cost Volkswagen something in the region of was it $1,600 billion by the time you add all everything up in terms of all the legal suits that they face and the bit of lost will? It was just an enormous number. Maybe that's an extreme example of where, a, where people don't take enough concern about the culture they're creating that allows certain things to happen. Fundamentally, by the way, are bad for customers because you're selling a product to a customer under a false promise. You know, selling it, they say it's, it's it compliant with the emissions. It wasn't. So sometimes people get maybe get uh, rocked into it. I do think that what has happened over the last, I'd say, ten years, I've seen, and maybe it's because of the kind of companies we work with tend to be more enlightened. <laughs> yeah, if they're going to hire somebody like you, they probably that the that the C that the new a new generation of CEO is coming in who actually does think like that who does want to make sure that they leave a culture, a, a legacy of culture, which is about doing the right thing and which is about a collaborative culture with a focus on delivering great value for customers and thus building a brand. And I think maybe it's people like Bezos, maybe it's people in other companies, maybe it's people like outliers like Patagonia, the clothes brand, which a lot of um, young people are very, very, very uh, loyal to, who are so on it in terms of the culture. Uh, Tony Shea, again, sadly passed away now, who, who founded Zappos, which Amazon eventually bought, as you know. He was absolutely so focused on building a great culture that would deliver a great experience for customers, which would create a great brand. And it was him who said, brand and culture are two sides of the same coin. And if you want to deliver happiness for your customers, you've got to deliver happiness for your people. And and he experimented with with different kind of organizational structures to try to enable that. But fundamentally, what he was 
uh, getting at what a, a lot of organizations do this right doing is creating a cross-functional cross cross-functional culture that is not siloed that is not working it to different agendas it's working to one common agenda of how do we deliver exceptional value for our customer at every touch point and i think why it goes wrong is a lot of businesses aren't structured like that they're structured mm-hmm. on individual P&Ls and if you've got an individual P&L then of course you're going to you're going to be rewarded on that individual P&L you're going to you know do what's going to be rewarding you at the end of the month yeah and and they're probably not very well organized around the customer either so here's the thing we talk about the amazon effect the amazon effect is this no matter what category you are buying something in I don't care whether it's a car, a hotel, I mean, a finance package, a pension, I mean, whatever it could be, even getting a doctor's appointment. Amazon has so transformed our expectations that we are expecting the levels of responsiveness and personalization and speed and ease that Amazon have set. So if Amazon can deliver me a book that's been out of print for 30 years inside 24 hours, why does it take me two days to book an appointment? Or why does it take me, you know, three hours to hang on the telephone to get through to my bank? Or why does it three weeks to get, to get returns for my, uh, from a product I sold back? So they have really raised the expectations among consumers and consumers are therefore now putting pressure on companies to deliver a higher level of customer experience. That is one thing that is driving change inside businesses, I think. Consumer pressure driven by what they see as the best they get in any category, they expect it from anywhere. And that's putting pressure, I think, on businesses to re- start to reorganize and begin to wake up to the fact that, you know, you've got to deliver a consistent experience if you want to build a consistent brand in the minds of those consumers so that when you're not in the room, they're saying good things about you. Yes, and that brings to mind the... Uh, mistake a lot of companies will make where they'll say, yeah, but our competitors aren't doing that. Well, your competitors (laughs) might suck. The fact is they are getting this kind of service from Amazon and they don't understand why you can't do it. And it brings to mind another story about a MRI machine manufacturer. Mm. They were selling these million and a half dollar machines to medical practices or hospitals. And the hospital is saying, why can't you tell us what day it's going to be here? Mm. <laughs> you can't, you know, I can get that book that's been out of print and they're going to tell me it's going to be here in a day or two. Why can't you do that? Yeah. And there's no good answer. And you know why? Because the person who is responsible for selling has very little authority or influence on the people who are responsible for manufacturing, ordering, stocking, delivering, and logistics. Mm-hmm. And they're probably five different departments. But the customers see that because the customer just sees one brand presented to them through the face of the representative, the salesperson. Yeah. It's just like uh, they're upset at Amazon because they, they might cut themselves trying to open that bubble yeah. pack, uh, the, that, that plastic, uh, what do they call it? Clamshell packaging. Yes. And it's hard to organize around a customer. And that's why if we're going to talk about Amazon, I have to tell my favorite story that I've, I've read about quite a bit is that Bezos was famous for when he went into a meeting, you know, in whatever the conference room was, he wanted at least one empty chair. Yes. And that was to represent the damn customer. And he would invariably right. point at the chair and say, no, she doesn't want that. 
Hello, did anybody think about that? (laughs) And then as people were getting ready for meetings with the boss, they'd say, you know what? He's going to point at that damn chair. We better have an answer. And so even a company like Amazon was struggling to keep it focused on the customer. And I should add, there have been some authors on the show over the years who say, Amazon is focused on their customers, but trust me, they do not care about the authors. (laughs) (laughs) they're like yeah we are second class citizens well you know uh, there's a great line by um i think the harvard professors francis frey and ann morris uh, and they talk about strategically underperforming in certain areas Uh, oh yeah you talk about that in your book yeah you just can't take care of everything uh so i think amazon say well, we're just going to strategically underperform with our authors. We can't take care of everybody. <laughs> yes, but so that's you know that's that is up to us to decide. Well, I'm going to go and try and get my books sold and our publishers' books sold through Bookstore.com or Direct or you know. But they know uh, what is important to their customers, and most exactly, companies don't, exactly. or they exactly. think they know. But they are very dialed into what the customers want, and yeah. there's just a few things they focus on. So it's okay to be bad at certain things, and you all talk about that. Andy Milligan, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think it's the thing we were talking about a lot at the beginning, which is no matter where you are in the organization, even if you are not in a marketing role, you have a role you can play in creating a great brand experience for customers. So think about that. And why don't you gently or sometimes more volubly, you know, promote inside your business with your managers, or if you're a CEO, start thinking about brand is not the responsibility of a marketing department. It's the responsibility of the whole business. That would be a one big thing I'd like all people to take out of that. And then they'll realize that marketing, that branding is not just a logo or advertising. Can you dig it? That's a great answer, folks. Sorry to break it to you, but it's not about a, a can of paint <laughs> that's going to fix your problems here. What is one thing a listener could do today? Uh, first thing, just to put in action one of the ideas from your book to get them thinking about this. I would ask everybody to think about their customers. And Walk in the shoes of the customer just for one day. You could do that in any way you like. You could go online and try and buy your own product online. You could visit your own dealership. You could find a customer and talk to them and get a sense of what matters most to them. Not what you are trying to sell, but what matters most to them. And, you know, we're great believers in, in quantitative data. When we approach a piece of work, we do qualitative uh, interviews with, with customers and with employees. And then we like to quantify that data so we can really clear that um, these groups of people are saying these things are most important. We've gone out and did a big study and we've, we've seen actually that's absolutely right. These are quantifiably the most important as a driver, driver as a value for your brand, you know, et cetera. But all that data and stuff, you know, it gets quickly turned into one of those 15 PowerPoint slides and easily forgotten. What people never forget is how they feel when they've talked to a customer Mm -hmm. or when they've walked through the experience a customer's had. And sharpening your instinct for what a a customer uh, wants is, is just 
is something anybody can do in any organization. And they can take that in and they can challenge sometimes then, why are we doing what we're doing? Maybe that customer, what that customer said to me, by the way, was wrong, but it made me challenge why are we doing, what are we doing? How can we improve what we're doing? And maybe I can also feed up into the mix of the company. You know, I've been going checking out our own website. It's poor. <laughs> What are we doing about it? Because that's our front face of the business and it's poor or whatever it might be. So, Yeah, that is such valuable advice. It really is. That's some of the best advice. Just walk in the shoes of your customer for a day. Most companies don't do it. A lot of people don't take ownership of it. And a couple things you don't want to say to folks, what's most important to you? (laughs) Ask them somewhat more. uh, Yeah. uh, Just have a conversation and don't say, what do you want? Yeah, don't say what do you want. Yeah. Don't talk say what do you yeah, want. Yeah. Just say what. Just talk. Just yeah. talk to these folks. Just listen. Yeah, I said, hey, I said, uh, yeah but you some of the say, best business ideas I've ever had, or particularly for clients, just come from uh, ethnographic research. So- Ask absolutely, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned one of the earlier books, "See, Feel, Think, Do." That was that was what that was about. Seeing what people are doing, what were they feeling, and what did you feel about what they were, what you were seeing thinking well what we're going to do about that and then doing something about it and it mm. starts going up you know it goes back to that story you were telling it's actually very true that in uh, every room in which a decision is being made at amazon there is a, a chair kept empty for the customer and it's uh, it derives from a psychotherapy process called gestalt theory gestalt theory in other words you know you you put all your issues in on that chair <laughs> That chair becomes a, a gestalt, a bigger thing. And in this case, it's the customer. Yes. You've written so many books. We could have like a Andy Milligan festival. Uh, yeah. Here oh, on let's the, do that. Let's do marketing that. Marketing book in, podcast. In, let's do that in Virginia. Yes. Oh, please come visit. We can have a book. In fact, you should, you should, turn, you should turn this into the marketing book podcast festival. Yes. Burgers and beers for, and, uh, you know. Adult beverages. In fact, if there's anyone in any listeners in the Norfolk or you know Virginia Beach area, please stop by for adult beverages. The only thing I ask is that you bring the adult beverages. Yes, <laughs> that's the only thing I ask. But yeah, do yeah, we should have like a little meetup here. Well, let me ask. Looking back on your career, uh, what books have most inspired it? There are three books, business-related books, because uh, as I said, I'm an English student or English major. I think we is the term you use in the states thank you for speaking american however briefly yeah what are they what's the phrase that uh, we're two countries separated by a common language <laughs> there are three books that kind of like gone woof. one of them is as old as time and it's dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence oh, people yes and if if i could make it a book on every school curriculum let alone every business school curriculum or put it into the hands of Every person who comes to the door in any business, it is the lessons in it, the extreme empathy that it talks about are so great. I, I didn't read it till I was almost 30, and I just thought, oh, I would have saved myself so many problems yeah. if I'd read this when I was 25. <laughs> and it was written like in 1936. Yeah, it is. And they've updated it a little bit but time to time, but you know, I think it's a, it, it, I recommend everybody. Yeah, that's a great idea. They should put that in the schools. Yeah, because it teaches you, it's not just about business, it's about life skills. It's mm-hmm. about very important skills around, you know, trying to understand others. And therefore, by understanding everything we were talking about, about brands and customers, trying to understand people who are not you. How do you get to that understanding so that you can help them and they can help you? The second book, it won't be so well known. It's called We, Me, Them, It. And it's by an English 
a business author called John Simmons. And it's a book about tone of voice. It's a book about the importance of writing in business and how much writing in business is terrible. Oh, yes. Gobbledygook, jargonistic, overcomplicated stuff. You can't, you know, you, you need a special dictionary to kind of, whereas we, me, them in it is about trying to find ways to understand how you can connect through good human writing, write human. Yeah, we, me, them, and it. How to write powerfully? We, me, them, it. We for business. What are we? The, what are we? The business about me? What's my? What, what is my tone of voice with inside this 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 business I work for? Them, our customers. What is it that they want to hear from us? What are the, you know? How do they listen? What? How do they talk? And it. What is it we're trying to oh. sell to them? To give them? Yeah, and it looks like a, a pretty new book. It's from Lid Publishing. He lives there in London, just like you. He does. It was originally published 20 odd years ago. It was just republished last year. Oh. And, and, and it's a really good book. So we meet them in it. And the final book I recommend, which is actually a bit more of a hard slog to read, and I wouldn't have read it if I hadn't been sent on a mini MBA course many years ago by the company I used to work for and went to Babson College in Massachusetts, just a little bit outside of uh, Harvard. And the yeah. faculty at Babson College used many of the faculty from Harvard Business School. And the book that was kind of the sort of core text we're looking at is a book called The Service Profit Chain by James Heskett, Earl Sasser Jr. and Len Schlesinger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of those moments where I just thought, oh, this is so brilliantly. Of course, it explains everything. If you really want to create a successful, profitable, growing business, find out what your customers want, empower equip, motivate, and inspire your people to deliver that. That's your role as a leader, and it's everything we talked about beforehand. Be the chief, if you're the CEO, be the chief brand officer and inspire your people to be able to deliver the branded experience that customers really want that keeps them returning again and again and again, which as we all know is the most profitable form of new business is repeat business and also makes them advocates for you to go out and recruit new customers on your behalf, which is the most effective form of recruit- customer hmm. recruitment, customer acquisition. Plus, it gives you a story to tell in your advertising, which is incredibly more powerful than some story about, hey, we support the vets or, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, you know? Or, the, or the environment or whatever. Oh, the environment. It's an authentic, powerful story. So it's called The Service Profit Chain. And to be honest, it's one of those books where you do have to think, crikey, these people are really smart and they do use – you know, the, the, it's, there's a lot of words here, uh, and there's a lot of graphs, and uh, but at the core of it all is that simplicity of that theory, and it's one that we live by: happy employees make happy customers, make happy shareholders. Yeah, the service profit chain: how leading companies link profit and growth to loyalty, satisfaction, and value. That was 1997. That's Sasser, Schlesinger, and Heskett. And then I see I'm, I'm reading from your book, page 134, Heskett had the article in uh, Harvard Business Review, and I'll try and include a link to yeah. that article yeah. uh, about yeah. the same the same topic. Well, yeah. great. Well, are there any uh, new or recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? 
Yeah, uh, a book I recommend, uh, which is, um, uh, again, I have to be declare uh, an interest here. It's a, a colleague and friend of mine, Louisa Clark and David Keane have written a book called Catalyst, uh, which is a great book. It's all about how to rapidly turn contacts into contracts. So how do you go from meeting uh, customers, clients, potential customers, potential clients, and rapidly identify how you can help them meaningfully help them and turn that into business and it's a really good book it's very well written it's very funny in places um because we've all been on the receipt of some really bad sales techniques and some really bogus attempts to build rapport with us um and uh, it's sort of you know there's a few of those so that is uh, catalyst again, using personal chemistry to convert contacts into yep. contracts david keen yep. and louisa clark yep interesting yeah. It is. That's a good one. And there's some great stories in there as well. And and what I like about all the books I've recommended, maybe with a slight exception of Service Profit Chain, because that, you know, you do have to sort of, that ain't one you're going to take to the sun lounger. Um, <laughs> but everyone, the other ones you can take on holiday and they're a good read. Um, oh, good. You, you have to kind of linger a bit more of a Service Profit Chain, but it's really good. And they do some great case studies. Uh, particularly Southwest Airlines is a fantastic case study in there that sh- just shows that real link between great culture great customer loyalty and in southwest uh, airlines uh, until recently you know 45 years worth of non-stop profitability unheard of in the airline industry yeah they had some problems uh, during the holidays in 2022 but they hopefully did. they'll pull it they did pull yeah. out of that to use an airplane yeah. term which shows you that exactly which shows you that it's a never never stopping business you cannot rest on your laurels it's a journey, not a destination. Am I right? Exactly. It's a journey, not a destination. And that is, uh, that is brand. Brand doesn't stop. You know, it's never complete. It always changes. I come back, you know, you, you look what Apple do today compared to what Apple did in 1984 and you know, when they first had that big campaign rather than 1984 under Steve Jobs. Unrecognizable from that one yes, product. Yes, yes. Like and they're not going to, they're not going to stop. And they're not going to stop. And yeah. Amazon, unrecognizable from what was the world's biggest bookstore back in 1995, 96, when it landed, when it's up to now sell you anything anywhere as quickly as you need it in the most uh, convenient way. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that you've mentioned, your caffeine partnership site, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter you. account. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Andy and congratulate him on the book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and putting up with my really stupid jokes. Send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever. Guests on the show have told me how much they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And I mean, he's written so many books, this clearly isn't going to be the last one. So now once he's been on the show, he's got to decide, is it worth my while to come back? And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Myths of Branding, Dispel the Misconceptions and Become a Brand Expert. The authors are Andy Milligan and Simon Bailey. Andy, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Doug, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being a great host. And I don't care what your wife says. You've got a great sense of humor. Sweet. And thank you to all your listeners for listening in. And uh, I, I really appreciate that. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you are one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune. <laughs>